Well, dear friends, dear congregation, I invite you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to that passage that I read to you just a moment ago in your hearing there in 2 Kings and the 16th chapter. And this chapter is taken up, as we begin, I say a few things by way of introduction. This chapter is taken up with this wicked king, King Ahaz, king of Judah. In our week-by-week ministry through God's Word, we have been considering chiefly in these last few chapters the kings of Israel in the north. Israel who broke away from Judah in the south. And we know that the Savior would come from Judah. God is keeping Judah and even Israel up to this point. In chapter 17, we will read of Israel no more. They will no more be a nation. They will cease to be a nation. Hoshea, we read in chapter 15, and you remember, if you look there at verse 30, is the last king of Israel in the north. And uh, he's mentioned there. And Hoshea, we read, the son of Elah made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, and smote him and slew him, and reigned in his stead in the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Uzziah was the king, wasn't he, in Judah, in the south. And remember, Josiah was also king. But Uzziah, remember when he went into the temple of the Lord and offered up incense in the place of the priest, God struck him. And then he was struck with leprosy. And for well over 50 years, he had to live outside of Jerusalem. And his son had to reign as king in his place. So our thoughts were taken up with Israel and then Judah. And now we're back here to Judah in the south. We thought about the last king, again, as I said in verse 30, king of King Hoshea, who would be the last king of Israel. And then chapter 17 will pick up again on the life of this last king, Hoshea. And we will be studying once again, just for the very last time, about this nation, Israel, who would cease to be a nation. Now, here in chapter 16 this morning, we are taken up. The Spirit of God lifts our eyes again to Judah in the south. And this king is a very wicked king. Most of the kings in Judah were godly kings. But here is a very wicked king in Judah in the south. Most of the kings of Israel were by and large wicked. And uh, Israel is going to, as I said, fall and be led away captivity in the year 722 BC. Judah will be kept for at least another 136 years. After that, in the year 586 BC, they will be led away captivity into Babylon for 70 years and will return back to the land. But they will never have a king again. And there's going to be a period of 400 years silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament when the king of Judah shall come, although the people didn't recognize him as king, the Lord Jesus, 
But his kingship, as we're reminded, is not an earthly kingship. It's a heavenly one. Didn't he say that? If my kingdom were of this world, I would fight, he said to Pilate. But it's not of this world. He came to secure a people, a bride for himself. He came to live for them and die for them, the Lord Jesus, to give them eternal life, to give them a new heavens and a new earth. This is what Peter says. We look for a new heavens and a new earth. Peter says we don't look for an earthly kingdom. But God is going to rejuvenate this entire universe and create a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And the book of the Revelation says God will tabernacle with his people forever and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But here we are in 2 Kings 16 and there are many lessons for us to learn while we wait for our great king, the Lord Jesus, to come. We read about worship. And my friends, worship is so important. The way we worship God, my friends, is so important because it really highlights what we think of God. And God tells us how we should worship him. And how we should worship him really should tell us what we should think of him. We sang there, didn't we, from that Psalm 89, that God is to be had in reverence by all them that are about him. But here we, we could write over this chapter, the man who rearranged the house of God. If we're going to look for a title to this chapter, we can say this, here is a king, a king of Judah, who rearranges, literally, the house of God. And God's judgment comes down upon this king of Judah. God's judgment is coming, my friends, upon those who, who do not worship him aright. God is never to be misrepresented. The first commandment is very clear, isn't it? that God should be worshipped alone and no other gods but him. And he is never to be represented by any image. And even the very way in which, remember how God gave instruction to Moses, how everything in the tabernacle was to be made exactly as God had said, because those things, we are told by the Apostle Paul, were shadows of good things to come. Paul says, pictures of the true, they were all going to and were displaying not only who God is, but would set forth the finished work of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said of himself? That he was able to destroy the temple and to raise it in three days. Of course, he is greater than the temple, isn't he? And the temple was always a teaching aid to show us how God would atone for sin and would display to us the Lord Jesus, would manifest Jesus Christ. Paul says that the things of the tabernacle were shadows of good things to come. Jesus Christ is the substance 
The temple, when Christ died, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying that all the ceremonial orders and things done within the temple were now made redundant because Christ Jesus would bring an end, as it were, to temple worship. And Paul says, does he not, to Christians, ye are the temple of the Lord. Christ now dwells in his people. But here's the thing, has Christ been revealed to us? When he died and he parted the, the temple curtain, God was signifying that that may, way had been made open unto him, that way that is through Christ. Paul tells us, my friends, you who are young Christians, new Christians, the one book you ought to really familiarize yourself with is Hebrews, because there is displayed how Christ is the fulfillment of all the ceremonial law, that he is the lamb, that he is the altar, that he is even the ark. Within that ark were three primary objects, the law. Christ is the law personified. He lived the law. He is the giver of the law. He fulfilled the law. He is also what was in the ark, the manna that came down from heaven in that golden censer. And did he not say, I am the manna which has come down from heaven? Was he not also that budding rod. Remember Aaron's budding rod that came alive. He was dead. Is now alive forevermore. And his whole life, just as Aaron's budding rod blossomed, my friends, the whole of the life of Jesus Christ, he bore fruit unto God. And we read, at least twice in the New Testament, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. The Lord Jesus said, Ye search the Scriptures. In them ye think ye have eternal life, but it is they which do testify of me. And the very one who said, Destroy the temple, this temple, and he was speaking even of his body, I will raise it in three days. Worship is through and has always been through the Lamb of God. But these objects here are so important. And here we have a king, King Ahaz, who thought he could rearrange the temple or the house of God. And judgment will come. Now there are many lessons for us to, to glean in this chapter. The first thing I want us to see here is the start of this ungodly king in the south and to see the depths of depravity in which he went to. And you know, the Bible does tell us that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And here we see a, a, a terribly wicked king who even causes his children, as we will read, not just his son, but his children, to go through the fires. He would institute and even carry out child sacrifice, even in his own family. Now notice 
In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And we notice, and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, like David, his father. Now David's always the marker, isn't he? A man after God's own heart, but not this king. Notice verse 3, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. As I said earlier, the kings of Israel were evil. Yea, and made his son to pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. Remember what the Lord said to the children of Israel when they went into the land, just before they did, to take heed to themselves, to be very careful because of these wicked practices, and for that sake the judgment of Canaan came because of their wicked practices. And now we find a king here of Israel actually practicing what the Canaanites did. Now if you turn to Second Chronicles 28, you'll see a little bit more light shed on him. Verse 1, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, but he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made also molten images for Baalim. So you can see there, this is not mentioned in Kings, but here it is. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So not just one. We don't know how many children there were, but one is enough. It's terrible. It's unspeakable. It's unthinkable, isn't it? And here are the superstitions of men. Now the Aztecs and the Incas went in the same way. This is foolishness of man, as if we can think we can appease a holy God in giving even our children, our offspring, who are sinners themselves. It's ridiculous to think. Job said, can anything clean come out of that which is unclean? And what he was referring to, can anything come out of a clean woman or a clean man? Nothing. And therefore there's nothing we can do or give to God to atone for sin. But here the foolishness of this king and going completely against that which is even by nature and is considered an abomination. Well, he sacrificed and burnt incense also. Notice verse 4. Come back to Chapter 16, in the high places. And this was a sin, as we've seen time and time again, that did not seem to go away. It seemed to perpetuate from king to king. These places, even true worship to the high God, to the one and only God, still continued. God never sanctioned incense and sacrifices given in these high places, in the hills, in these groves, and so on. 
and under every green tree. It's probably not every single green tree, but every kind of green tree. Again, superstition is madness to think that, well, you need to cover every area of the land. It's like some religions making the sign of the cross wherever they go, as if somehow making the sign of a cross will make a place more holy. There was only one place where sacrifice was to be given. We've seen it time and again. Jerusalem. Yes, there were the synagogues throughout, but nowhere was it ever instituted or sanctioned that sacrifice was to be given to God other than that one central place of worship in the temple at Jerusalem. So this is terrible, isn't it? And So we have, first of all here, an ungodly man, really, who has no fear of God. And by the way, there's nobody trying to stop him. And as we'll see, even his priest, Uriah, he goes headlong with him in all manner of sin. Doesn't try to stop him. There's no fear in the priesthood. The nation has got to such a terrible state. The priests don't try to stop him. The people don't try to stop him. Ungodliness throughout. Now, something else. Secondly, I want you to notice God, and we must never forget this, whenever calamity comes on the land, and this was never true when David ruled and reigned as king, remember God is over all. And God promised in Deuteronomy 28 that he would send enemies upon Israel and Judah if they forsook his laws. But you notice in verse 5, because of this man's great wickedness, his sin, what does God do? Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramelah, king of Israel, now even Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war. Even sister Israel. And now we have to say, God had promised peace if there was obedience to his word. But because there is no obedience, war comes. War comes even from Syria and Israel. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. Well, again, the explanation is God. Now, why is God still preserving Judah? Well, the answer is very simple, as we will see in just a moment. Isaiah the prophet is living at this very time. And the Lord promised that he would send the Savior into the world through Judah. And that's the only reason it's being preserved. If you just turn to Isaiah chapter 7, you notice... Here, it's a well-known verse. Scripture, I'm going to read the first 16 verses. God sends a prophet to this wicked king, Ahaz, during this time. And he sends him a message saying that he, he, he will recover and he will deliver. Verse 1, and it came to pass, Isaiah 7, 1, in the days of Ahaz, 
the son of Jotham, so the same Ahaz, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Razin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. Ephraim was another name, by the way, for Israel. And his heart was moved, and the hearts of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Now notice verse 3. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, that's Isaiah the prophet, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed, and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of those, these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and the son of Ramaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it. Let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabal. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand. Look at this. Neither shall it come to pass. Here's the reason. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Raisin. Within, and within threescore and five years, shall Ephraim be broken, that it shall not be a people. God's telling the future here. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramallah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Now notice, Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, he didn't listen the first time, saying, ask thee a sign, a sign that all this is going to come to pass, of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the heights above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. Now that's bizarre, isn't it? Why would he say such a thing? I'm not going to ask the Lord. What a wonderful promise. His heart so hard against the Lord. And the Lord is saying, I will deliver. Ask of me a sign. Was he interested in a sign? Now notice. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, verse 12, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, hear ye now. The Lord's going to give it anyway. O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. What's the Lord saying? The reason I am going to keep Judah is that out of Judah, is going to be one that is called Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. What a promise that is, my dear friends. And you see, this is why the Lord is keeping Judah right now. Because he has 
determined to send his king, the Lord Jesus, into this world. But we read that Ahaz, he did not want to hear the word of God. He didn't want to believe it. And what we see is he even tries to rearrange the house of God. And that's how it is, even today, my friend. For people who claim they believe in God, but they rearrange things to suit their liking. What folly. What folly is in man. The Lord is saying, effectually, Ahaz, it's impossible that Assyria will destroy because... I will send Emmanuel. The virgin shall be with child. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. And we know what the name Emmanuel means. God with us, don't we? What a promise this is. Well, what does he do? He's even given this promise, but he doesn't fear the Lord. No trust. And the Lord does keep him. The Lord there's no overcoming the enemy. Syria doesn't overthrow. Israel doesn't overthrow. They kept little Judah and Benjamin kept. And yet, you see, even despite this, I want you to see the hardness of this king's heart. It's amazing, isn't it? So we could put a title over the sermon, The Man that rearranged the house of God, and he did. But you know, God is in control, and God will not be mocked. Now, I want you to see something here as we turn to verse 7. He sends messengers to the king of Syria. Despite all of this, and the, the prophet Isaiah has told him, and remember, this is the same Isaiah who, in the year that King Uzziah died, remember, it was Uzziah who went into the temple of the Lord and offered up incense, and the Lord struck him with leprosy, right as he was just about to offer it. Same Isaiah. Now, what does he do? The Lord spoken, the Lord sent the prophet to him, and yet he still sends messengers to the king of Syria. This is just brazen. Notice. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pilsir, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant. But the Lord said, I'll deliver. And thy son, come up, save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. But Ahaz, God has spoken. Just hardness. Notice verse 8, and Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? And the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive to Ker and slew Rezin. So he delivered him Yes, but at a cost. He had to give him all the gold, all the silver, all the treasures of the house of the Lord. 
But that was not needful at all. He ended up giving him payment. Well, he goes up to Damascus to admire this king. This king who had delivered him. Look at verse 10. And King Ahaz went up to Damascus to meet Tigar-Pilzer, king of Assyria. So there he is admiring him. Ah, oh, thank you for the deliverance. All that is done. But you notice what happens while he's there. Did you notice verse 10b? And saw an altar that was at Damascus. He saw an altar. Now, remember, this is a pagan land. But he, he sees this altar. And what does he do? And King Ahaz sent to Urijah, the priest, the fashion of the altar. Maybe he gets somebody to do a drawing. And you know what? Before he even gets back there, Uriah the priest has made this thing. A replica. No hesitancy. No fear of God. He's made an unknown altar. A pagan altar that was never according to God's design as we know from Exodus. That had to be made specifically just as God had said. These altars, they were not like the altars of the Lord. For on the altar of the Lord a lamb had to be given. The lamb pointing to the lamb of God. But he sees this while he is there, you see. Wrong place. And he spied, oh, I like that altar. That looks nice. Maybe it looked glorious. Wonderful stones. It, it looks tremendous. How could I have that? It's better than the one we got back. Home in Jerusalem. We'll have that. We'll send the plans to Uriah. And as, before he even gets back, it's made. It's constructed. And what do we read? He relegates the altar of the Lord to the back of the temple and gives prominence to this new altar and calls the new altar the great altar. What an insult to the almighty God of heaven and earth. Look there with me. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tilgath-Pilzer, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And he noticed, and the pattern of it, he sent to Uriah, to all the workmanship thereof, and Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that the king had sent to Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it against King Ahaz, as he came from Damascus, is already made. Verse 12, and when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar. It's already there. No time wasted. So eager. And the king approached to the altar and offered thereon. And he burnt his burnt offering 
in his meat offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. My friend, this is wickedness, is it not? We could say really this is witchcraft. In a sense, because what's the difference between worship and witchcraft? Well, witchcraft is you, you, you try to take the true things of God and you manipulate them to get what you want. And notice that he relegates the true altar to the back. And he says, I'm going to consult God from the original altar, but I'm going to put sacrifice on the elder altar, on the great altar. And that's what we read. He calls it now the great altar. He says to the servant on the great altar, notice verse 15. And King Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest saying, upon the great altar, that's this new one, the morning and the burnt offering and the evening meat offering and the king's burnt sacrifice and so on, all of these things, and even the offerings of the people, put on this new one. This is a better one. But he still thinks, this is why I call it witchcraft, that he can still have God's favor. Now by relegating the old one to the back and consulting God, but I'll inquire. The brazen altar, notice as we read on, and sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice and the brazen altar, that's the original one, shall be for me to inquire by. My friend, put it to you this way. God will not hear those who disobey him. He will not. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And this really is not only great compromise, but it's witchcraft. Real worship, my friends, is about knowing God and surrendering everything to him. Do you realize that this altar of the Lord, when the people saw the altar, when they looked at it, they realized that an innocent victim would have to go upon that altar. And when the sinner looked at that altar, he was cut and she was cut to the heart. This is what my sin deserves. To know God is to fear him because you realize what you deserve. You realize that the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the Father had to give the Son, did he not, as a sacrifice for his people. What, what does Paul say in the New Testament in Hebrews? He says, but we have an altar. Did they which take part in the Old Testament tabernacle have no part? They can have no part. Christ is the altar, Christ is the sacrifice, Christ is the priest, Christ is the lamb, Christ is everything. Ahaz had a new altar, but he never had God. He never had God's approval. Now let me say this. 
People today have a new cross. There's the old cross. It's the cross of Christ. It's the death of the Lamb. The new cross is, don't talk about sin, will you? You put people off coming to church. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about hell. Don't talk about God's wrath. Don't talk about God's holiness. You make people uncomfortable. And by the way, you, you, you need the world in the church so that people feel a little bit more at home. You need a band. You need, you need to make it feel like the world. That's the old thinking, isn't it? But that's, as it were, the new altar. That's the new approach, but it's wrong. You can have that, but you can't have God. You won't have his blessing. See how this man, he tries to rearrange everything. Paul says in Hebrews 10:1, the law having a shadow of good things to come. That's the, the law of the ceremony. We're teaching us of Christ who was to give his life as a ransom. And my friend, you know, people today, they, they talk about a, a, a user-friendly gospel. You can't have a user-friendly gospel. Because God is not friendly with sinners. He is, the scriptures say he is angry with sinners every day. And it is only through Christ that sinners may be received. It's only through his shed blood it's only through God's justice poured out upon his Son that any sinner can have reconciliation with God. You see, he had a new altar. But he didn't have God. We speak about the cross being Christ's altar. When they laid him on the cross, remember they had to put him on the cross and they had to strap him and they had to nail him to that cross. He was lying down and it's a picture too, isn't it, of Isaac being laid down, but Isaac was spared. When Father Abraham took his son, Isaac, God provided a substitute. But Christ was not spared. And he is the only way that sinners might be reconciled to God. It's the old cross, isn't it? But that is not preached today. That's, that's almost become redundant. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish, says the apostle, but it's the power and the wisdom of God to them that are saved. Oh, he had a new altar, but he didn't have God. He rearranged things. And then he thought he had the nerve to think he could consult God by relegating the altar to the back. My friend, you will never know God's presence and blessing if you relegate anything that he has commanded in his word. You will never know his blessing. You will never know his favor. A new altar. It came from a fallen man, didn't it? It came from this, this king. Oh, it looks good, but it was no good. 
And look at the look look at the priest. He was just a man pleaser. He was just a king pleaser. But you, you have so much of that today. You have men in the pulpits who are men pleasers and people pleasers and king pleasers and well it's not going to be popular. Well I don't care if it's not popular. It's still not pleasing to God, is it? People bow down to all kinds of things, but they don't bow down to God. As I said, when the old altar was there, the sinner saw it. They knew that God required wrath. And you see, what happened is when the altar was there, a sinner saw it. They were made aware of their sin. The conscience began to work. And this is what happens at the preaching of the cross. The conscience begins to work. And this is why Christians need to hear the gospel. Often. Because we realize we're only accepted on the basis of Christ's death. Accepted in the beloved, says the Apostle Paul. That's the only way I'm accepted. But he came with a new altar. Why? Because he was an unconverted man. Not saved. He had no fear. And even when he heard of this promise that a, a virgin shall give forth a child and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, he didn't want to hear it. It's startling, isn't it? But that's the human heart, my friend. The human heart. And this man, he even sent his son, sons we read there, into the fire. It's a little wonder, isn't it? Many are like even the priest today, who instead of searching the scriptures and preaching faithfully, I mean, he should have questioned the king, shouldn't he? Uriah the, the priest, we turn our attention to him. He, he should have questioned the king. But did he question the king? We have people today in the state church who just kowtow to the state and the politicians and don't bother searching the scriptures. Well, you know, they say, well, the church needs to move with the time. Church doesn't need to move with the time. The times are evil. God doesn't change. His word doesn't change. And Uriah was just as much to blame. And so were all the other priests and all the people. My friend, let me say this. Doctrine is everything. He should have searched the scriptures... In fact, he should have known the scriptures. Was this right? Can we just take what God has commanded? We, we have it very clearly in, in Exodus. That I can encourage you to, to, to read there in Exodus 25. God had said exactly how it's to be. But furthermore, you read how he cut the feet of the laver off, where the priests were, were meant to wash their hands. This is such an important feature. 
As you approached worship, the priests had to wash themselves. They had to consecrate themselves. And it was saying, God is holy. But he cut the feet of this great laver that Solomon had made, where all these oxen were around. Take your time to read it this afternoon. And he, he just, he, he, he got rid of half of it. But you can't do that. That labor was saying a sinner must come in a sanctified way because God is holy. And he is not to be trifled with. It's a fearful thing, my friend, to fall into the hands of the living God, isn't it? Well, there are many more things to say. But if you look at this man, there's no sorrow for all that he's done. Today we have a new cross, not the old cross. We have a new altar. We have a new way. Let me say, anything that is new is questionable. It's always questionable, isn't it? He kept his sin let me say this, the old cross demands repentance. This king had no repentance. Uriah had no repentance. You know what the scriptures say, that if thy brother sin against thee, go and tell him his fault. And if he confess it, you must forgive him. And now, here's the thing. We... Preach a cross that simply Christ died for people and it doesn't matter how they live. But that's not Christianity. Christianity always has repentance with it, has faith. But you see, we've got to see the altar because the altar, when we look at the altar of the cross of Christ, we see what we deserve. And remember, as Peter preached on that day of Pentecost, we read how men were cut to the heart. But how few are cut to the heart today to the point where they turn from sin and turn from their idols to serve the living God. So few, my friend, so few. You see, Christ died not only to save the, his people, but to make them grieve over their sin and to turn from it. Listen to what Peter said. After he's preached, we read Acts 2, 37, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They seemed helpless. What, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized. Repent. That means turn. And the baptism is a picture that you have died to self and that you are raised in newness of life. And you see how the people, they joined the church that day that were baptized. That's why we never separate baptism and church membership. Read it, please, for yourself. We never separate the two. 
And I've seen churches do that. So people are, I get baptized now, and they never have a commitment to the local church. You don't see that in the New Testament. People that were baptized were added, and they were subject to each other. And you read there how they came under the teaching of the apostles. And we carry on in that. We teach right through the New Testament, don't we? Commitment to Christ, and we forsake all for Christ. We love his church. We love his people. And when God's word says something, we don't question it. But we do it. Because he who knows to do good and doesn't do it, it is sin. It's sin. My friend, I really come with a burdened heart this morning. Because so many proclaim they've heard, but they've never acted upon what they've heard. They claim to have repentance, but so little of it is seen in the life. May God help us. May we be warned. Look at this man, Uriah. Are you a compromiser? Look at this king. You don't arrange anything or rearrange anything that God has arranged. He's done everything perfectly, and everything is pointing to Christ. And if you really see, if you really understand that altar of the cross of Christ, as we'll sing in a minute, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, but poor contempt on all my pride. Lord, forbid that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. And we live for him who died for us that we might live with him forever. What's wrong with the churches today? They're preaching a different altar. They're preaching a different cross. When Paul went amongst the Corinthians, he said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you know, the Christian, he can say, I am crucified with Christ. Are you crucified with Christ? Is the old life gone? Is the old will gone? Is there a new will? A new desire? Love him. See what you are without him. I see many parents even sacrificing their children to this world. They may not put them through the fires. The best thing you can do is bring them here. To hear God's word. God in his mercy might save. Amen.